Uh, Right now, we are going to turn our attention to the Word of God. Uh, We are in Luke chapter 9, uh, today verses 18 to 22. And um, as you uh, flip there, I just want to tell you a bit about um, a man who you probably have not heard of. Uh, but you, you more than likely have heard of, of his big idea. So this man's name is Edward Packard. Uh, he was uh, a book author, but, but not just a book author. He was someone who came up with a, an entirely new way of doing books, uh, kids' books. Uh, these, these book series that he created were very, very big before Harry Potter. Uh, he titled them Choose Your Own Adventure. Do you remember these books? Uh, These are books where essentially the control of the story is it's not in the hands of the author, but it's in the hands of the reader. And uh, as a child, I love these books. You can see some of the original ones there that we've put up. Uh, 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 Totally revolutionized the reading experience. Because now, as, as a reader, I got to decide what I was going to do. So if it was a jungle adventure, and there was a lion in front of me, at the bottom of that page, uh, it would say, you know, there's a lion, uh, what do you want to do? If you want to curl up in a ball and pretend that you're dead, turn to page six. If you want to make yourself big and try to scare the lion away, turn to page eight. So I would turn to page eight, and it would say, you were eaten by the lion, right? It's very, very exciting. So um, the reason I bring up these books is because I, I think... This is a helpful way to see our lives uh, from the biblical point of view. By that I mean that uh, from the Bible's point of view, describing uh, reality for us as human beings, there are very clear choices that we have to make and very uh, clear consequences that come from those choices. Uh, But the truth of the matter is that we are not actually the author of the story. Uh, In those books, you know, you have a choice, but it's not like you can write your own uh, ending to a story and then glue it into the book. It doesn't work that way. Uh, The story itself still has been written. There is still an author, and uh, that's very much the same thing for us. However, there is, there are some key choices that we have to make, and one of them comes up in in our text this morning. Uh, That question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he, is he just a interesting historical figure? Is he a wise counselor? Is he a moral teacher? Or is he the son of God? This choice is one that has uh, huge implications for our lives, for how we see the world, and for our eternal destiny. What we're going to see here in our text this morning is that this is a question that Jesus himself puts to his disciples. I mean, everyone at the time, Jesus has been healing, he's been teaching, everyone is asking this question, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? But here in Luke chapter 9, Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks this very question. So this is going to be our key question for this morning. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? We're going to find that there are three answers that come up in our text, and we're going to take each one in turn. But first, we're going to look and read the first couple of verses. So this is verse 18 and 19 of Luke chapter 9. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So we'll stop there uh, for a moment before going any farther. Uh, What we can see right away here is that this question that Jesus asked was not asked uh, flippantly. Like he didn't just kind of on a whim say, hey, you know, what do you think about me? It's very clear that there's some intentionality here. He's been praying. He's praying alone. And then the other thing you notice is that he doesn't, ask, he doesn't ask them outright. He first asks, you know, who, who do the rest of the people, who do the crowds say that I am? And the answer is the first answer we're going to see. that They answer, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. 
Verse 19, again, and they answered, uh, well, you're John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old had ri- has risen. Uh, now, this was a very popular answer at the time. In fact, uh, it's the answer that's most given in the Gospels, especially early on when people are trying to figure out, like, who is Jesus? A lot of people are saying, well, you know, he, he must be a prophet. And it's a reason, there's a reason why this is a popular answer, and that's because for the Jewish people, they were fairly familiar with prophets. I mean, they had a, lot, a whole history of prophets all through the Old Testament. There are prophets that come, speak on behalf of God, do miracles, do amazing things. Even in the New Testament, with John the Baptist, there are, there are prophets. Uh, prophets are simply human beings chosen by God, set apart by God to bring the message of God to his people, to the world, and to do miracles and healings at times. And so far, I mean, Jesus has really acted like a prophet. Um, he's been doing these very things. He's been, he's been healing, he's been preaching, he's been teaching. So you can imagine people in the town square as they're talking about Jesus saying, man, what, what's with this rabbi? I mean, who, who is he? And someone else saying, well, he, he healed my cousin. And someone else saying, I heard him teach. He, he spoke with authority. Man, he must, he must be a prophet. And if you're wondering why they, they keep mentioning Elijah, you might have noticed that earlier on in chapter 9. People keep saying, especially when, like when Herod is wondering, who, who is this guy? People keep saying, well, maybe it's Elijah. The reason for that is uh, the very uh, second to last verse of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi uh, says this. This is Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, this is God speaking to his people. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So you can see there that the people of God uh, at the time who knew their Old Testament, uh, they would have known that they were waiting for Elijah. And they would have assumed then that if Jesus has come in this way, then this must be him. Now, in fact, John the Baptist was the, the, the second coming of Elijah. But it would have been easy for the people to be confused because, uh, you know, John the Baptist was dead. And so if he had really came to usher in the day of the Lord, they would have been confused about what happened. But Jesus, man, Jesus, he really seemed to fit the bill. It made sense for them to think that Jesus uh, was a prophet, the prophet that they, they've been waiting for. This is, in fact, still a very popular answer. Uh, today, there are millions of Muslims all over the world that, that would, in the answer to the question, who is Jesus, they would say he is a prophet. Uh, there's millions more Hindus who in the, the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is, well, he's a, he's a God. He's a small g God that we add to the rest of our thousands of gods. He's a very spiritual leader, a lot of respect for Jesus. Seeing him in that capacity, though, is not just a, a popular thing. It also means something very specific about how you interact with Jesus. Because to see Jesus as a prophet means that he is a, he's manageable. I mean, the people of God back then, they were used to dealing with prophets. All through the Old Testament, you see people come, they, they respect prophets to a certain degree, but really they're looking for a word from God, looking for help, looking for healings. But if they don't like what the prophet says, well, they, they reject him, they run him out of town. The nice thing about seeing Jesus as just a prophet is that you stay in control. That, that he's just a man. And that he's speaking words of God, but if you don't really think that those are the words that God wanted him to say, then you can, you can ignore him. We prefer, really, to see Jesus in this way. To see him as manageable. Where we're still in control and we can pick and choose what it is that we want to receive from him. These days, we don't often say that he's a prophet in our secular culture, but we'll, we'll say, well, he's a great teacher. 
He's a wise, uh, ancient character. He's, he's had a lot of influence in society. We pick different ways to interact with Jesus uh, to show that he's, he's manageable. We're in control and we can take from him what we want. The problem, of course, with this is that it's, it's not accurate. That it, that it doesn't rightly depict how Jesus uh, acts in the Bible and the words that he says. I mean, we, we prefer this for lots of reasons. We always like to be in control. That's why we like the, the choose-your-own-adventure. Finally, I get to decide what's going to happen. But what we see in the Bible is that Jesus never actually allows himself to be managed in this way. In fact, what we see very clearly, what he makes clear, is that he is more than just a prophet. To, to say Jesus is, is just a prophet is, is like saying, you know, Wayne Gretzky is just another hockey player. Or Michael Jordan He's just another basketball player who just finally finished, you know, his, his big epic net Netflix series. It, just to say, well, he's just another basketball player. Or, or to say that Don Bradman, right, is just another cricket player. We all, I had to look it up. I wanted some variety. You know, I, these amazing sports figures, they're not just, they, they seem to transcend the sport itself. That, that's, that's Jesus. Not just in a sense that he transcends, but really, really he transcends the, what it means to be a prophet. He, he is a prophet. He's in a long line of prophets, but he's much, much more than that. And you see this in the way that he pushes the disciples. He's always pushing everyone to, to grapple with the truth, the deep, transcendent truth of who he truly is. So let's look at, at how he flips it now. He's asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? But now look at verse 20, where he very simply says, Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. That word there, that phrase, makes very, very clear that Jesus is, is not just another prophet. And this is our second answer, that Jesus is, is in fact the Christ. <clears throat> now that term Christ uh, is a technical one. We need to know uh, what that means, that the Christ. It, it means, uh, in other words, Messiah. It means the anointed one. Uh, there had actually been a lot of anointed uh, leaders throughout Israel's history. And uh, to be anointed means... They, they were, in fact, um, they had oil that they would pour over their head. It was a symbolic act to say that this, this person, this man now, is set apart for holy work. Uh, so Aaron was anointed when he became the first priest of Israel. Isaiah was anointed when he began his prophetic ministry. David, King David, was anointed to show that he was set apart as, as God's chosen king. In fact, uh, some of the language of Messiah was often used to speak about Israel's kings. They were the anointed ones, the one came to, to lead uh, the people of God. But you notice here that uh, Peter doesn't just say that Jesus was, was a Messiah or a Christ. He says, you are the Christ of God which makes explicit something that Jesus has been kind of alluding to all throughout his ministry. Even though it hasn't been a, a lot of ministry thus far, he's been implying something grander about himself. He's been saying, I haven't just been sent by God, I am God. I haven't just come with a message from God, I, I am the Son of God, sent on his mission. I, I don't just have some divine power, I am divine. See, see this is the point where Jesus becomes distinctly unmanageable. Because if he is God, if he is divine, then it's very clear that we are not in control. And it's very clear that he, in fact, has divine authority over us, which is a very different thing than just a prophet or just a moral teacher. 
See, if Jesus is who he's claiming to be here, who Peter says he is, then it's not just that he, he is part of the reality as we know it. Jesus completely redefines reality. Let me give you an illustration uh, just to kind of help, help understand this. Uh, let's use our, our solar system. See, many people, uh, if we were to just see him as a prophet or a wise teacher, something like that, uh, in that sense, we could say that, well, Jesus is kind of like a planet in our solar system. Now, planets are, are pretty amazing. We did an astrology uh, unit, astronomy unit this year, uh, looking at the different planets, and uh, planets are fantastic. Planets are worthy of study. We send spacecraft to go and take pictures of Jupiter, and, and we should. It's amazing. It, it's almost incomprehensible to think of how big some of these planets are. Uh, I did a little research uh, into the... Uh, grade five uh, science textbook, and uh, what I found was that you can fit 1,300 Earths into Jupiter. Just think of how big that is. And Jupiter doesn't even have any land. It's all gas. I don't even how, know how it works. It, it's amazing. It, it, we should be sort of awestruck when we think of Jupiter. But here's the thing. It's very different to say that Jupiter is a planet or Jupiter is a sun or a star. Because, I mean, planets are are amazing, planets are cool, but they aren't consequential the way that stars are. I mean, just think about Pluto for a minute. Does anyone even know if Pluto is still a planet? Like, have we decided? It goes back and forth all the time, and no one really cares. Why? Because it's way, he's way out there. It's just a planet, nothing's orbiting around it, except, of course, it's five moons, but no one cares about them either. It, planets are, are not consequential in the way that suns are. Planets revolve around the sun, and, and that's the, the big thing about when Copernicus said that, look, the sun is at the center of our solar system. Everyone looked up and thought, but the sun is, I mean, it keeps moving. And he's like, no, no, you gotta, you got to think differently. We are moving around the sun. just blew everyone's mind. In fact, it was very disorientating. People didn't like that. They didn't like that it changed. But, but once they got it, once they saw that, yes, the sun was at the center of the solar system, Everything else fit into place. That's who Jesus is when we see him as the Son of God, when we see him as divine. When we see him that way for the first time, it's disorientating because we, we have to accept the fact that we can't just add Jesus into whatever else we got going on. He can't just be a wise teacher or a prophet that comes and, and we benefit from him somehow. We have to completely reorient our lives around him as the center. Because he's more than a son. He, he's the creator of the son. But when we see him that way, everything snaps into place. We understand ourselves, understand the purpose of the universe, understand how everything came to be and the hope that we have in the universe. Uh, there's a book that was written uh, a number of years ago uh, by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. It was his attempt to explain Christianity to, uh, to the world, maybe those who are skeptical. And there's a, a paragraph in there that's become quite famous because he's, he's really pushing people to make a decision about the deity of Christ. And so it may be something you've heard before, but I think it's fitting to read it here again in its entirety. So, so here's what Lewis says about Jesus. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic, or else he would be the devil of hell. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, Jesus, Jesus wasn't just a prophet, like everyone said back then. And he's not just a great moral teacher, like people say today. And Peter, Peter, bless his heart, Peter, he gets it right. He nails it. He, he says the thing that hopefully was, was percolating in the minds of all the disciples. He declares, Jesus, you're, you're not a planet. You were the sun. You were the center, the divine, the Christ. You would think at that moment, that Jesus would be very pleased. That, that the crescendo of kind of this, this climax of him speaking this truth about Jesus would, would just kind of, the momentum of it, Jesus would use it and say, Peter, you're right. That's who I am. That's who I need you to know that I am. Now let's go. Let's go back out. I sent you once. Go back again. Tell everyone that I'm in the Messiah. Tell them this is why I have come, that I'm the one they've been waiting for. You'd think the people would be, would be excited about it, and they would. And you'd think that Jesus would want all the disciples to go now that they see who he is clearly. But that's not what happens. In fact, what happens is, is just the opposite. Let's look at our, our, our last couple of verses here. Verse 21. And he, Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So that's very strong language. Very strong negative language. So he says they're strictly charged and commanded to tell no one. He basically muzzles them. He says, look, now that you know who I am, don't tell anyone. Why would he do that? It seems counterproductive. I mean, if he came on the mission from God to to do the things that God called him to do, shouldn't everyone know who he is? Well, the answer to why Jesus put on the brakes is, is fairly simple. He didn't want there to be any misunderstandings. See, the disciples, they, they knew who he was now, but they, they weren't very clear about what he had come to do. They knew he was the Christ, but they didn't really know what that meant. And if they were to go out and start telling people that Jesus is the Messiah, the prevailing uh, idea at the time was that the Messiah would come as like a political revolutionary, uh, that they would establish a new kingdom of Israel. And so everyone would have gotten really, really excited, but they would have got excited for the wrong reasons. So that's why Jesus shuts them down. And you'll notice that he immediately begins to explain to them, yes, I'm the Christ, and here is what's going to happen. Here's what I've come to do. Here's who I really am. It's our third answer. We see here that Jesus is the Christ, yes, but Jesus is our crucified Savior. Our crucified Savior. See, there are some words there in that text that would have, I think, just shocked the disciples. Words like suffer. Words like to be rejected. To be killed. All of these words would have just been completely um, unexpected for the disciples. They never thought that those kinds of things would happen to the, to the Messiah. I mean, even when Jesus was a prophet, they had higher hopes for him than that, right? They thought he would, he would lead his people, that there'd be a, a season of victory. But if he's the Messiah, they would have thought, well, then nothing, no one can stand in our way. What are we waiting for? Let's go. He's divine. You can imagine that the tone of the room completely changing. 
that there's this roller coaster of, of Peter speaking and everyone like, we thought maybe, and yes, yes, it's true. And then the air just being let out of the room as Jesus says, no, no, but don't tell everyone. In fact, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Shocking words. But there's another word there that's just as uh, shocking and noteworthy. A small little word that, that they might have missed over. It's easy for us to kind of just pass it by. That word is must. Must. He doesn't just say that the Son of Man will suffer these things. He says the Son of Man must suffer many things. See, Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, here's, here's what's going to happen. He's saying these things, these horrible things that are going to happen to me, they are, they are necessary. They are essential for me to accomplish what God has sent me to do. And you can imagine the disciples thinking, what? necessary? How on earth could it be necessary for the Messiah, the one who's going to come to lead us, for him to suffer and to die? What, what possibly could be necessary about those things? And the answer that would come in time is that it was necessary that the Son of Man should suffer because his intention was to bring ultimate salvation and justice into a world of sin. Now justice, justice is something that's been on our hearts and minds a lot lately. We see this cry for justice uh, on most of our computer screens and and news outlets. We've seen uh, protests and anger and sorrow over one man's death at the hands of those who were supposed to be serving and protecting him, and there's this cries for justice. We, we can understand those cries for justice. We don't condone looting. We don't condone rioting, of course. But we should seek to understand the, the deep-seated sorrow and anger that comes when we see another victim of oppression and abuse. For, for those who, who just watched the video Like myself, when I watch it, sitting in the comfort of my home, even just watching what transpired brings about anger in my heart. I'm not sure you can watch it without getting angry. But if you're a person of color, then you would take that anger and it would be compounded by the history of systemic racism in America and even here in Canada. And that would well up even greater anger, even greater frustration for the things that have been committed in the past, for instances in your own life, We don't know specifically whether race was a motivating factor, but we do know that the act itself, combined with what we see in history, brings about a cry of of a need for justice, a need for change, a need for greater love and understanding between people who look different, between those who have power and those who don't. The cries for justice these days are warranted. The question that we should be asking, though, is what does God think? when he looks at our world today? What's God's reaction when he looks down and he sees what's going on? Because remember, he doesn't just see one instance of publicized violence. He doesn't look around and see see isolated instances of, of racism. He sees every instance of one person putting down another, one person having violence against another. He sees every example of injustice and oppression, people taking advantage of each other, People simply because of the different color of their skin, a different past heritage, whatever it may be. He sees the, the depth of evil in the human heart. And more than that, he sees all this evil perpetrated against his children, people that he made in his image. That, that's the, 
the baseline sin of, of racism, racism is that it, we're human beings made in the image of God, all image bearers, all worthy of dignity, all worthy of respect. When God looks down, how does he feel about it? What does he think? Well, we don't have to wonder. He tells us. He tells us a number of times in the Bible. Here's, here's one instance, Romans 1.18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, God is, is angry at the world and those who perpetrate sins because they are disobeying his commands, because we are interacting in the way that God has told us to and because we completely, we completely disregard who we are as human beings as God made us. See, any anger that we feel pales in comparison to the anger that God has. And as we interact with those around us, as we seek to find hope for our, for our country, for our world, we do right to consider God's point of view and, and the hope that he brings. Because what God says to us is, look, there will be a day when justice will be served. What God says very clearly is that you never have to worry that there will be someone somewhere who gets away with something. You never have to take vengeance into your own hands. In fact, he says this in Romans 12, 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God makes absolutely clear that he is a just God and that his universe is a just universe. The good news for us, though, thankfully, is that he is not just a God of justice. He is also a God of mercy. And I say that because each one of us, each one of us is in the category of those who commit sin. All of us. All of us interact with each other in ways that prioritize ourselves, are selfish, unkind, ungracious. All of us are deserving of the wrath of God. But God is merciful not just a God of justice. In fact, God is, God is like a father who gets a call from the local police station. Your son is in jail. Your son has been committing immoral, illegal acts. We've locked him up. And the father's response is one of anger and frustration. Can't believe what his son has done. But he also gets in his car and drives to the police station because he's full of compassion for his son. He's going to bail him out. See, that's the power of the cross. That's the power of what Jesus is revealing to his disciples. That, that God's answer to the world is a unified response to sin. It's, it's both justice and mercy. Justice because we see very clearly in, in the cross and the suffering and death of Jesus that God takes every single sin seriously and that he will punish it unto death. The wages of sin is death. The mercy, the mercy is that we do not have to endure the death. That Jesus did that for us. That as, that as he allowed himself to, to be beaten, to suffer, to be nailed to the cross, he took all the consequences on himself. And in that act, he brought hope for us in death, but also in life. That's, that's the power of the cross. That it's not simply a hope for the life to come. It's a hope for here and now. See, in this difficult time, where we're wrestling through what it means to be in a society where we see that people don't treat each other as we should, 
where in families there's, there's anger and violence, or between races there's been systemic anger and violence. Even in Canada, even in Canada we have many, many examples that we can think of, that we can see, where people treat each other differently, and the question on our minds is how do we respond? What hope can we bring? What's the right answer, especially for us as the church? It seems wise to look to those who have wrestled with this question in the past. And so one man who uh, stands above all the others is Martin Luther King Jr., a man who knew the Lord and a man who was intimately acquainted with the need for protest, the need to cry out when injustice was there, the need to spur on change in community, change in culture. But I'm going to read a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., and what we're going to see in it is, is not just the need for protest, the need for for spurring on change, but to see that his ultimate hope was not in the power of men, but in the power of God. Here's what he says in his book, Strength to Love. He says, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. See, what he's acknowledging there is that when it comes to human beings and our attempts to try to make the world better since the time of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, we have been descending in a spiral of destruction. It's a picture of our own sin. But the beacon there, the hope there, is in love and light. And that's Christ. Christ says he came into the world to be the light of the world. He came to bring the love of God. And it's not simply a a love that is out there. It's a love that's transformative. It's a love that when we understand Jesus and what he's done for us, he remakes us from the inside out. It's true what the Bible says, what we see here in this passage about Jesus. Jesus is a prophet, but he's more than that. Jesus is the Christ, but he came for a specific reason. Jesus is our crucified Savior, which means that he brings an answer to our sin. He brings not only an answer to the consequence that comes, but also the bondage that we're under. That the thing that makes us react in anger towards those who are angry at us, the thing that makes it difficult for us to truly forgive others and to overcome the differences between us. All of that only truly happens when we know Christ as Savior and Lord because then we see ourselves for who we are, which is part of the problem. The real question that comes from our text, comes from the Bible itself, is the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Not just who do, who do people out there see that, say that Jesus is, but who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you believe him to be? Is he, is he a wise teacher from days gone by? Is, is, he, is he someone worth listening to because of his great quotes? Is he someone that we can be amazed at that this peasant from thousands of years ago, now has influence over the entire world. It can boggle our minds. Is he that or is he the son of God? Is he the one who made us? The one who has the right to command us and yet the one who came to die for us? Is he in fact the prince of peace? The one who, when we follow him, will be led to to greater and greater peace, greater and greater joy, not just for us as individuals, but for our community. See, for those of us who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are called to mourn with those who mourn. 
We are called to grieve and, and to be filled with sorrow at the injustices that are done around us. But we are not to forget the tool that's been placed in our hands, a tool for reconciliation, a tool for forgiveness, a tool for love, and that is the gospel. That we need not look around and wonder how we can step into this conversation, this, this conversation that's so fraught with, with different opinions and difficulties. We can step in confidently with the perfect understanding of who Jesus is and who we are and the need for every human being to come to faith, to come to see our sin in humility, recognizing our need for help and to be able to extend that to others. Now, how that happens, how we're called to do that is going to vary depending on the conversation. But we need not wonder what is it that will bring hope and peace. We, we know what it is. We know who it is. His name is Jesus. For those of us who aren't sure yet about Jesus, those maybe who are interested, been genuinely interested, been tuning in maybe on this, uh, on this feed or other churches and just wondering more, wanting to know more about Jesus, there's something else you should know about this scene, something that's not immediately apparent uh, from the book of Luke, but we see it in Matthew. See, in this scene, it seems like Peter, man, it seems like Peter is just the smartest guy there, which if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll see that that's not always the case. But he seems to connect the dots in a way that the other disciples don't, or at least he seems bold enough to answer. And you might think, man, I just, I need to be able to, to figure it all out. And when I do, then I will know. Then I'll be able to make a decision about Jesus. But in the book of Matthew, we get a bit of insight into how Peter came to this realization. So here's Matthew 16, verses 16 and 17. Same scene. It says, Simon Peter replied to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's just another word for him. Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, what this means is that it's not just the, that Peter was smart enough. We sometimes think, if I, if I can just reason enough, if I can just you know, connect all the dots, answer all my questions, that then, then I will be able to make a decision about Jesus. Hear me, it's a good thing for us to think deeply about Jesus. We're invited to think deeply, study deeply, read books of history, read the Bible itself. We need to be clear in our mind about who Jesus says he is and what he has done. But we should also be clear that no one ever thinks their way to Christ. It's a step of faith. And it's a step of faith that is brought about by the power of God. He said there, it's, it's not flesh and blood that has revealed this to you. It's my Father in heaven. What this means is if you're genuinely interested in knowing who Jesus is, you need to think about him, but you also need to pray. Because it's not until we come to our knees and we see our need for Jesus, that we will truly come to faith. The good news is that this is not something that we have to try to make happen on our own. It's a gift from God. It's the Spirit of God who opens our eyes, opens our heart to see who we are and who he is. At this time, in our world, this should be very good news for us. Because what it means is that God is at work. Even in those times where where our minds fail, where our hearts fail, where we are not able to, to bring about the change that we want, the truth is that it's God's change in us that will bring us the greatest hope that we can ever need and the, 
the greatest hope that our, humani- our, our world needs. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for you if you're watching and you're genuinely considering who Christ is, that there would be a shift of heart by the power of God. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for this revelation in the word. I thank you, Jesus, that you put it to us personally. Who who are you? What is our decision? What are we to say? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bring about a conviction in us when it comes to our sin, that you would bring about a clarity when it comes to who you are. And I pray, Lord, for those watching, those who are trying to decide, God, would you, would you open their minds and their heart? Would you help them to see the truth that you are the Christ, that you are our crucified Savior, and that it's because of you that we have hope? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are going to respond uh, to the Word of God as we do each week. Uh, the band is coming up. Uh, we are going to invite you to, to sing along with them and to praise God uh, wherever you are. We'd also invite you to prayer. We'd love to pray with you and for you. You can email the church. Uh, we'd love to, to connect with you over the phone and pray for you. Or I'd invite you just to pray with those who you're with at home. Uh, we also always mention that giving is part of our response, part of our worship, because it's a way of acknowledging uh, everything that we have is from God. And it's our joy to be able to, to support the ministry and to see the gospel go out. So you can do that online if you're part of the church. If you're a guest here with us, please feel no obligation to give. We're just glad you're here with us. But I would invite you now uh, to stand if you are able, wherever you are, and we're going to worship together.
Thanks again for joining us. I want to leave you with uh, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have the opportunity to walk in those good works this week. Uh, let me pray that as we do, we would be empowered by God and full of the gospel ready to share, ready to love. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you indeed for your word. Thankful for the reminder, Lord Jesus, that you are our crucified Savior. I pray as we go from this place, those of us who are here and those of us who are at home, wherever they are, Lord, as we are beginning to, to be able to be in different uh, people's presences, as our, as our opportunities abound, Lord, to share love, to bring peace, I pray, God, that we would not forget what you've given us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would indeed remake us, renew us from the inside out, and Lord, that that impact would be felt throughout our culture. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.